For our scripture today, I'll be reading Exodus 12, verses 1 to 13. And then Exodus 12, 12, 24 to 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the heads, the legs, and the internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And chapter 12, verses 24 through 28. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord has given you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passes over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat in the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon and the firstborn <coughs> of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Morning to everyone. So one of the things, maybe some of you have experienced this, you find out when you get married is that each person brings their own rituals to the marriage. And sometimes you don't even realize you have these rituals until something goes missing. So for example, for me, at Thanksgiving, the stuffing is is pretty important to me. I, I I really like stuffing. But not just any stuffing. 
See, I realized after I got married that there's a certain kind of stuffing that I like to eat, and it's my great-grandmother Tozer's stuffing. It's a stuffing that my mom made growing up, which is a stuffing that her mom made, which is the stuffing that her mom made. And when I bite into that, that stuffing, I don't just taste something delicious. I am connected through smell and taste to multiple generations of my family who have come before me and eaten this stuffing, which is why I was thrown for such a loop one year when Krishana decided to make cornbread stuffing for Thanksgiving. I have no history with cornbread stuffing. My people from the north of this country don't eat cornbread stuffing. Cornbread stuffing tells a story that is not my story, and we're still kind of working this out in our marriage, how this works, but food is a powerful vehicle to tell our stories. Food is a way we communicate who we are and where we came from. And this Friday is Passover, and Jews around the world will gather in family homes to take part in a ritual feast known as the Passover Seder. And so cups of wine on this night will be drunk, uh, matzah bread, unleavened bread will be eaten, symbolic foods will be placed on this, this plate, which has these twin themes of, of slavery and freedom. And at one point on, on Friday, uh, Jews all over the, around the world, a youngest child will ask the question, why is this night different from all other nights? And through the food that's eaten, through the words that are spoken, through these rituals that surround this meal, the child will be told that this, this night is different from all other nights because on this night, God rescued us from slavery. And what will be said is not that, that God rescued our, our ancestors, but God rescued me from slavery. And think about this. For 30-plus centuries, this story has now been told. I mean, it's hard to think of anything that was happening 30 centuries ago that's still happening now. And yet on Friday, this will happen all over the world. A story passed down from generation to generation to generation. A story embedded in a meal. When we left off our story last week, Pharaoh was on the ropes. He and Yahweh had gone nine rounds in this head-to-head battle. Blows had come down again and again on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Pharaoh is on the ropes, but he is still refusing to let the Israelites go. And now God has told Moses that there will be one more plague, one more blow that will strike Pharaoh, and that will be the death of the firstborn son of Egypt. And after that terrible blow, God says, Pharaoh is going to finally let you go. Now, I just want to acknowledge right now, I think for a lot of us, this is a really challenging plague. Okay, This is hard for us to swallow. Maybe you're thinking, um, you know, I recognize how brutal the Egyptians have been to the Israelites. Uh, I, I remember that they first are the ones that killed the Israelite firstborn sons. And, and I also think about all the chances that Pharaoh had to change his mind and let the Israelites go. But I am struggling with this plague, right? This is the death of a lot of children, and this bothers me. I just want to say I think that's completely understandable. If you are troubled by this story, I get it. I'm not going to resolve all your trouble in this sermon. But I want to point out one thing. You and I, we tend to focus on that part of the story. And it's there, like the death of the firstborn sons. But that's not the author's primary concern. You know how many verses the author of of Exodus gives to that event? Two. Look at how much of the text talks about what happens before the plague. 
Because there's something that's completely different that's happening with this plague than all the other plagues. We've had this this fast-paced story, which has quickly moved from one creation-bending plague to the next. And all of a sudden, our story comes to a screeching halt, and we pause for supper. I think how odd this is. Okay, we've had last week, we had, we had hail falling from the sky. We had um, frogs coming out of a bloody river. We had total darkness. And now God says, hey, Moses, we need to talk about supper. We need to talk about what you can eat, fire-roasted lamb and bitter herbs and unleavened bread. We also need to talk about how you're going to eat this. You're going to eat this with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your shoes on, with your staff in your hands. You're going to eat it, like, it's like, sounds like half out your door, out, you're going to eat it like half out, sorry. You're going to eat it like you're halfway out the door, like uh, your mom said you're never supposed to eat your supper. Because, Moses, I'm getting you out of here. And there's one really, really important part of this meal, and that has to do with a lamb. Every household's going to take a lamb. They're going to slaughter that lamb. It can't just be any lamb. It's going to be a lamb without defect. Okay? You're going you're to drain the blood of that lamb into a basin, and then you're going to take a bunch of hyssop. This was a, an evergreen plant that, that grew in the Middle East. You're going to take that branch. You're going uh, to dip it in the blood, and you're going to begin to paint the door frames of your house. So that's your supper plans. Okay? Any questions? I, one summer, I worked out in Montana at a at a huge sheep ranch in the mountains. And it was, I went there during lambing season, and I got to, to work with a herd of something like 3,000 ewes. I'd never worked with sheep, and my memory of that summer was being really impressed with some animals. I was incredibly impressed with the border collies that were tasked with herding sheep. If you've ever watched a border collie, not like in an urban area, like working as a border collie was designed to do, they are incredible animals, physically, mentally, completely loyal to their master, an incredibly impressive animal. The other animal I remember were the Great Pyrenees dogs, which would, uh, would live with the sheep and would act when they were out in the mountains as their protectors. Like bears would come in, and these Great Pyrenees dogs would actually go out and chase after the bear to, to protect the sheep. Incredibly impressive animals. The lambs and the ewes, not very impressive. Got to say, hey, Moses, the, the full force of my judgment is coming down on this land tonight. The tenth and final plague, the knockout blow, and your only hope is a lamb. Really? A lamb? Oh, this destruction, we've seen the power of God. We, we hear what is coming, and what is going to protect us is this fluffy little lamb. Really? There's something that we tend to miss about the, uh, the tenth plague that, that, that's easy to miss, uh, Again and again, the, the plagues, God has made a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. So, uh, plague of the livestock. That plague comes down. Livestock belonging to Israelites live. Livestock belonging to the Egyptian dies. Hail comes down. Hail destroys the crops of the Egyptians, but it does not destroy the fields in Goshen where the Israelites are. Darkness comes over the land except where the Israelites live. My point is Yahweh clearly knows how to differentiate between Egyptians and Israelites. Yahweh, no, Yahweh has very precise blows. Like there's no such thing as collateral damage uh, in this fight with Pharaoh. So we can say with confidence, if we've got a house here and a house over there, and one's Egyptian and one's Israelite, I think Yahweh can tell the difference. But yet we're told in this text that the destroyer is going to go house to house and the destroyer makes no distinction of the people. 
Okay, this time, rather than, um, uh, we have this really surprising revelation in this, in this passage is that the Israelites actually need to be protected not from the Egyptians but from God, which means that the firstborn sons of all the Israelites are not going to be saved, for example, by their ethnicity. The firstborn sons of the Israelites are not going to be saved because uh, they are the oppressed and the Egyptians are the oppressors. Now, as we've seen, God is very concerned about the fact that the, Israelis, uh, the Israelites are oppressed. But that's not what's going to save them. The Israelites are not going to be saved because they are good and the Egyptians are bad. No, in this last plague, the difference between who lives and who dies is one thing, and that's the blood of the Lamb. That is what's going to make the difference between who lives and who dies. And, and Christopher Wright, he points out, in his commentary, that this blood acts as a sign in two different ways. It's a sign for the Israelites, and it's a sign for the Egyptians. First, for, in verse 13, we read this. The blood will be a sign for you, so the Israelites, on the houses where you are. Okay, The blood on this doorpost is not just a sign for, for God. It is a sign for the Israelites. Remember, they're going to take this blood, they're going to dip that hyssop, and they're going to start painting that, and that's going to be a sign for them. Okay, now, remember where we are in the story. Our story has taken a pause. We've taken a time out for this supper. And, and, we're, and we're told from this point forward, you know, generation after generation, we'll celebrate uh, this meal, this liberation from, from slavery. But at this point in our story, the Israelites are not free. Okay, they're in Egypt. Pharaoh, he's on the ropes, but he's still in control. Uh, the Israelites are going to have to trust in this promise that if they act out on this sign of obedience, putting the blood, they will be spared. Once, they, once they've done that, they can be assured that they are safe. And I think this is a helpful reminder to us as followers of Jesus that we are called to act out our faith while it's still night. So the NCAA tournament wrapped up last week. Uh, our condolences, Mary, to you. Often after a... Uh, <laughs> you had that coming. Um, after that comment about Missouri State and my ordination. <laughs> Often you hear at the Final Four, semifinal game is over, and, and, and the, you know, the broadcaster comes up to the coach and says, hey, how do you feel, coach? And usually you get something like, no, we, we're really happy. We, we played a solid game, but we got work to do. Okay? We, got, we were playing a tough team on Monday for the championship, and we have got to be prepared. All right, so usually the coach, they always want to tamp down the expectation. They don't want to celebrate prematurely. I've never heard a coach say, you know, I feel great uh, because the championship game is on Monday, and, and Leslie, we're going like, to we're gonna, we're gonna kill these guys. They have no chance. In fact, I'm going to go out tonight and take all my team out and celebrate on Saturday night because I'm so confident that we're going to win the championship. Nobody, I've never heard a coach do that. You only act like you've won the championship after you've won the championship. But the Israelites here, they're called to act like victory has come before victory has come. They're called to act like they're free before they're really free, while they're still in slavery in Egypt. The Israelites are asked to place their trust in God while they're still in captivity. They, they've seen the power of God. They've seen these first nine plagues with their own eyes. But remember, they're still in slavery. In other words, uh, the Israelites are going to have to have faith in God on the side of the Red Sea on this side of the Red Sea where they're still in slavery and where it's not entirely clear how they're going to get through to the other side. 
I think we, as, as Jesus followers, are called to do something similar. We're called to act out our faith and obedience on this side of the Red Sea. See, we're not at the promised land yet. We've seen a mighty, powerful act of God, as we'll celebrate this Sunday. But we're not at the promised land yet. In fact, I think a lot of times it can feel like in our own lives, we are far from the promised land. We can look at what's happening in our life, and this does not feel like the promised land. We can look at our world around us like we do right now. We can say, where is God in all this? But, but those are the times where God says, ask us to put our faith in God. It's at those times when, when it's unclear how we're going to get to the other side, when it still feels more like night than it does day, that God calls us to trust that he's going to get us to the other side. That's faith, okay? Faith is not getting to the other side of the Red Sea, seeing things clearly and saying, I knew God could do it. Faith is saying, I don't, I don't fully understand how this is all going to work out. I don't see the whole picture. I don't quite understand this whole, like, painting blood on a doorpost. I've got some questions, but I know who God is, and I'm going to trust God enough to do it. Okay? That's the first sign is for the Israelites. But the blood isn't just a sign for the Israelites. It's a sign for God. Verse 13 continues. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Okay, so the the blood isn't just significant for the Israelites. It is significant for God as well. The sign, as God comes through, the sign of the blood is going to communicate something to God. What is the sign going to communicate? Well, according to the text, the God sees the blood. It will be a sign that death has already occurred in this household. Okay, the reason why God can pass over this household, as I said, is not because uh, that child is, is more inherently good than the other, that that is a perfect child. No, it's because of the blood. This house will not be invaded by God because death has already invaded that house through the lamb. Okay, the oldest son in this house will not die. Why? Because, an old, because a lamb has died in its place. Okay, the lamb has taken the place of the oldest son. Okay, that's the first supper. And it's really important for us to get our minds around the first supper because the first supper lays the foundation for the last supper. Okay? We are not gonna, we're not going to really understand what's happening at the Last Supper if we don't understand what's happening at the First Supper. Okay, so we're, now we're going to jump ahead three, uh, about 1,300, 1,400 year, years to the Gospel of Luke. So we don't know um, much about Jesus' childhood, right? We only get these couple little stories uh, in Luke's Gospel mainly. But one of them is when, I think Greg preached on this um, uh, in our series on Mary, is when... When Jesus is 12 years old and he goes to Jerusalem, do you remember why Jesus went to Jerusalem? He went to celebrate the Passover, okay? So all these years later, 13, 1400 years, we're not exactly sure, all these years later, the descendants of Abraham are still celebrating the Passover, right? Remember, God had, had told them, you're going to do this generation after generation after generation, and that has happened. But a few changes have happened. One, now the focus of the Passover is not at the house, it's in Jerusalem, so you're not going to be slaughtering a lamb at, at your house. You're going to take the lamb to the temple, and on the twilight of Passover, that lamb is going to be slaughtered by the priest. And then you'll take that lamb, you'll go back to a house uh, somewhere in Jerusalem, and you will celebrate the Passover. Okay, so lamb's still being sacrificed, but there's some differences. Um, we don't read this in the text, so I'm using my imagination, but I'm just thinking, like, you know, probably at some point Jesus is the little child that asked the question, what does this mean? Right? Just like hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation, 
Now Jesus is going to ask the question, and he's going to be told the story. We do this because this is when God delivered us from slavery in Egypt, right? This is when, uh, when the, the blood was, uh, was painted on the doorpost and God passed over, right? So Jesus grows up hearing a story year after year about a lamb that was slain for the people. So fast forward here 18 more years, okay? G- Jesus is walking along, John's gospel, uh, John the Baptist sees him and says, look, the Lamb of God. Next day, John sees Jesus, look, the Lamb of God. I'm thinking this is like kind of odd, right? John is kind of an eccentric guy, but imagine like you're walking along and someone just says like, look, the Lamb of God. I mean, it would be a very like strange thing, right? And it's not just like any random animal that John the Baptist says he calls Jesus. He calls them a lamb. Okay? So we've heard this story. We've got a lamb uh, who's, who's, who's slain at ex, in the Exodus um, in the Passover. We also have in, the Levitical, uh, in Leviticus, we'll read about how lambs were also slaughtered as a sin offering, as a sacrifice for sin. Okay? My point is, like, if you want to be any animal, like, you don't want to be a lamb. And I'm wondering what Jesus is thinking like. He's heard this story year after year after year, and now all of a sudden, This eccentric guy, his cousin, is saying, you're the lamb. Fast forward a few more years. We're in Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday, the day we recognize today. Jesus arrives on Sunday, but not any old Sunday. When does Jesus choose to come to Jerusalem? Okay, think about this. I don't think this is coincidental. Because Jesus has been telling his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Like, there's going to be this series of events that are triggered once I hit Jerusalem, and the end of that is me being killed. Okay, Jesus knows once he arrives in Jerusalem, at this point in his ministry, he is going to die. Jesus could have chosen any week to go to Jerusalem. Jesus didn't choose any week. What week did Jesus choose? He chooses the week of Passover. I don't think that's coincidental. On Thursday of this week, that we celebrate, Jesus will send his disciples ahead of him to make preparations for what meal? The Passover meal. There, Jesus and the disciples, probably, there's, we know the men were there, probably possibly some women there with them. They're, they're, um, they're doing what they've done since they were little boys, right? They're reclining, right? Why are they reclining? Because that's the posture of those who are free. They're remembering uh, how they were freed from slavery in Egypt and how they longed to be freed again. They're singing songs from their songbook, the Psalter. They're eating unleavened bread, which will remind them how their ancestors had to leave in such haste. And they're drinking wine. But there's something missing from the table. There's no lamb. This meal has all the marks of a Passover meal, but it's missing the one thing that is most central to this meal, the lamb. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is not just telling the story of Exodus as a host. Jesus is now placing himself at the center of this story. And this is, this is very obvious to the, new, the writers of the New Testament because there, as they're reflecting on this, they're going to see all these connections between the first Passover and the Last Supper and the last week of Jesus' life. Here, I'll just name a few. In Exodus, we read that the Israelites are to choose a lamb without blemish. In First Peter, we read that Christ was the lamb without blemish or defect. In Exodus, we read that the Israelites were not allowed to break the bones of the Passover meal. In John's Gospel, after Jesus has died, we read that none of his bones are broken. In Exodus, we read that the Israelites are told to dip hyssop 
into the blood. As Jesus hangs on the cross in that last bit of time, he's alive. He's offered a sponge soaked in wine vinegar on the stalk of a hyssop plant. The Passover lamb is slain on the eve of Passover. The Gospels do a little bit different, but in John's Gospel, John has the slaughter of Jesus on the cross at twilight at the same time the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. Do you see all these links between the Passover lamb and Jesus the lamb? There's one major difference. In the story of the Passover, the lamb dies in the place of the firstborn son. The destroyer comes, sees that death has already come to the house, and so passes over the house, and the firstborn son lives. The firstborn son in Exodus is redeemed by the blood of the lamb. In the story, the story of Jesus, we again have a firstborn son, but this time there's no substitute provided for the firstborn son. No, in this story, the son himself will be that substitute. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God slain for us. He is the one that offers a place of safety for all those who take shelter under his blood. If you had a if you'd have found one of those Israelites, a woman or a man, they're wandering around the, the wilderness all those years later after the Exodus, and you were to say, hey, what is your story? How did you get here? It might have gone something like this. I used to be a slave in Egypt under the service of Pharaoh, but I was rescued by the blood of the lamb. I then passed through the waters and went from being under Pharaoh's service to being under God's service, and now I'm headed to the promised land. Which, if you're a follower of Jesus, that sounds a lot like your story. I once was a slave. I was enslaved to the powers of sin and to death and the dark forces of the world. But I was rescued by the blood of the Lamb. I passed through the waters of baptism, and I now transferred my allegiance to a new master, God. And I'm heading to the promised land. That's our story. That's a powerful story. In the Mishnah, which is the uh, it's an ancient collection when the the Jewish oral traditions began to be written down. The Mishnah states this, In every generation, a pers- person must regard himself as though he personally had gone out of Egypt. Okay? The instruction when you're celebrating the Passover, and this will happen this Friday, you're not just going to remember Egypt. You're going to say, I was in Egypt. You're going to be invited to see yourself in Egypt leaving, uh, leaving in the Exodus. You're not going to say, my ancestors were in Egypt and they were saved. You're going to say, no, I was in Egypt and this is what the Lord did for me. And we as followers of Jesus, as we gather like we will on Thursday to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're going to tell a story that's embedded in a meal and food. It's a story about salvation that is told through bread and wine. But we're invited as followers of Jesus not just to retell the story from the past, but to actually place ourselves in that story to see ourselves at that table in Jerusalem on that night where, as our confession of faith says, the supper re-presents the presence of the risen Christ in the church. Let me read that to you again. This is from our confession of faith. The supper re-presents the presence of the risen Christ in the church. Not represents, represents. It's it's subtle, but it's a difference. It leaves a little space for mystery. Are we comfortable with mystery? Are we okay with some mystery? I think we need to be okay with some mystery. Because we're not just remembering 
an event that happened a couple thousand years ago, we're remembering that somehow mysteriously as we encounter the bread and the wine that we actually are encountering the risen Christ. And if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you've passed through the waters of baptism, this Thursday you will come here and you will, you will be said, somebody will tell you this, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed you, not for your ancestors. This is shed for you. Let me tell you why this matters. If you don't have an understanding of the significance of this week and the significance of the cross and the significance of a Passover lamb who died for our sins, you might have some belief that God loves you, but it's going to be a generic love, okay? We've got to recognize that God's love for us is not some kind of generic love. I mean, think about our culture today. This word love is batted around all the time. Often it, it means so little because it's conceived primarily in terms of something like tolerance or as an emotion. That is not the love of God. That is, the love of God is not a generic love. The, God, the love of God is one that is rooted in history. It's rooted in events, an act, and that has the power to transform you. It is a costly love. This love was costly to the son, the Passover lamb, who was slaughtered on our behalf. It was costly to the father. And it was done for you and for me. As we begin this holy week, I invite you to throw yourself into this story. Don't just talk about the story of holy week. Throw yourself into this story. Throw yourself into this week that is different from all other weeks so you can experience it. On Monday, Thursday, don't just think about the blood and, and, and body of Christ. Take it in. Ingest it. Don't just think about how, isn't that amazing how Jesus washed his disciples' feet and how he told us to wash each other's feet? I want you to actually wash your brother's feet. I want you to wash your sister's feet. And I want you to let them wash your feet. And I get it. It's uncomfortable. It's humbling. And it's a beautiful tradition we have as Mennonites. It's powerful. Don't just think about washing feet. Get your feet washed. Wash your brother or your sister's feet. This Friday, on Good Friday, don't just think about Jesus dying on the cross. Come join with your brothers and sisters. Uh, maybe think about, I would encourage you to fast that day. That's a long tradition in the Christian church to fast on Good Friday. If you, can't, if you don't want to do a whole day, give up one meal that day. Allow yourself to feel physically what is happening on Good Friday. And then come join with your brothers and sisters as we meditate and feel the pain of that evening through music and art on our Good Friday service. On Holy Saturday, wait. Wait. Hold vigil for Jesus because you know what's coming, but you're going to have to wait. And on Easter Sunday, come back here and proclaim that Christ is risen. Let's pray. God, we come before you in awe and gratitude for the sacrifice you have made on our behalf. Christ, our Passover lamb slain for us. May your love for us is so clearly revealed on the cross penetrate our hearts. Empower us by your spirit, not just to be bystanders on the way of the cross, but to follow after Jesus, who takes us not just to death, but through it. Amen.